sort of starting in the middle of, at the tail end of a paragraph. Uh, so let's roll with it. Therefore, encourage one another and build up, sorry, build one another up just as you were doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And we'll finish there for now. Father, help us to receive your word like the Thessalonians did, not as though it were the word of man, but as the very word of God. Help us to submit our minds, our affections, and our will to its authority. Help us to rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ as he is revealed to us in the gospel, and that we might turn from our idols to serve the living God through faith and in love. In the name of Christ, our Savior, uh, through faith in his incarnation, obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension in our behalf. Amen. Well, it seems that uh, lately I've had a few conversations that have revolved around some concepts about uh, sort of what the church is about and uh, what the people within the church ought to be doing. These conversations have uh, gravitated towards uh, these ideas that are held in tension, at least I understand them to be held in tension, and we find these things in the membership vows, BCO 57, five, uh, number five. The last vow that you take as members, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? Those vows are repeated for uh, officers of the church in different ways they're expressed. Uh, in the ARP, people study the peace, purity, and prosperity of the church. It's kind of interesting that the PCA leaves out the third P in all of that. And as uh, I, I think about denominations, I tend to think that the ARP, uh, my former denomination, seems to really focus in on the peace of the church. Uh, that's really the one that they're good at. Uh, seeking to uphold and maintain, and they study the peace of the church, and they, and as a result, they sometimes let things go a little bit in order to preserve the peace of the church. As we think of our brothers and sisters in the OPC, and some of you used to be OPC, um, they're really big on the purity of the church, and the purity of the church is incredibly important, uh, but if we think about it in an uh, absent of the peace of the church, then sometimes we make big hills out of what should be little hills. But we should also consider the prosperity of the church, not financial prosperity of the church, but the expansion of the church numerically, as well as the prosperity of souls as they, as they grow spiritually. And so growing down deeper as well as growing broader, these three things 
I believe, are ideas uh, or, or rather goals that we hold in tension and that we are to seek, to pursue, to study, to make known. I think this has a lot to do with that question that we're asking, or asking about today, that fourth commitment, who it is that makes disciples. I think this has incredible bearing, and I think that incredible bearing is revealed in this particular text that we have this morning from 1 Thessalonians 5. In verse 11, I think Paul is answering this question, how does our great salvation matter now? Because he starts with a therefore. And as R.C. Sproul says frequently, frequently, what is, you have to ask what the therefore is. Therefore, okay, the previous verses, he talks about the fact that Christ has saved us. Saved us in order that we might live with him. That we might live with him while we're alive in, in this earthly life, as well as that we might dwell with him, live with him forever as his people, even though we die. And so Paul is speaking of the death and the resurrection of Christ on our behalf, and he says, therefore, live this way, do these things. And so we have again, uh, I'm going to repeat that gospel logic. Okay, The gospel always reveals what Christ has done for us and then gets to the implications of that gospel. Sometimes it's talked about in terms of indicative and then imperative. But gospel logic talks about the gospel facts and then the gospel implications. And so here, the first of the, well, the implications that Paul brings out are encourage one another and build one another up. This is a command that he gives to the entire church, all of its members. Everybody's supposed to be engaged in these great things. The efforts to do these can be formal. In other words, uh, you can be recognized as a teacher within the congregation, whether it's to children, whether it's to teens, or whether it's to adults, whether it's to men, or whether it's to women. That's a formal sort of way of doing this, but it also can be fulfilled in a very informal fashion as well. Sometimes it's as simple as talking to a friend who is struggling, a friend who needs to be encouraged, a friend who needs to be built up and sharing with them from the Word of God. And so uh, the, the ministry of the Word can have both its formal aspects as well as its informal aspects. But the key here is that as you do that, you're seeking the prosperity of the church. Uh, You're seeking to help someone grow deeper in their faith. And that is connected to the prosperity of the church. This word that we find in courage uh, has many forms, uh, has a wide range in its semantic meaning. It can mean exhort, it can mean beg, it can mean rebuke. Which one of these is determined largely by the context? And the context for First Thessalonians is one of persecution. That's 
One of the reasons why I like that we read through this as part of our community reading this week, so you got that idea of the afflictions that the church was experiencing, that even from its beginning, the gospel was persecuted, Paul was persecuted, and the people came to faith despite the persecution of Paul. And they, even though Paul was gone, they still experienced persecution, and persecuted people need encouragement. That's what Paul is getting at here. And throughout this letter, he's seeking to encourage that church in Thessalonica. Leon Morris notes that this word has with it the, the idea to strengthen someone with your words. And it's important to remember that the context here would point us to the fact that it's not just words, but with the words of Scripture. With the, with the principles and the truth of Scripture. And that you're trying to bring God's promises to bear towards people who are discouraged so that they become encouraged. People who lack strength, strength so that they have strength. In other words, it's not simply a pep rally with lots of cheerleaders jumping and, and uh, people making fiery speeches. That's not what Paul has in mind. It's not about encouraging people to just try harder, just try longer. But it's something that is ultimately rooted in the work and words of Jesus so that those people aren't afraid, uh, so that those people are looking to Jesus for strength as opposed to trying to find you know, the, the strength within them. Yesterday we had forced family fun. wasn't going to bring this up, but I thought I would because it fits. We watched the Peanut Butter Falcon as a mostly as a family. Not everyone likes to submit to the forced family fun, but uh, and it, it circles around the relationship between a, a, a Down syndrome man and as well as a man who's heartbroken and having a hard time adjusting to the uh, the death of his brother and. The Down syndrome man wants to become a professional wrestler, and so he gets him to the, where he thinks is going to be uh, this professional wrestler who will teach him how to be a wrestler. And he has his first match, and that's a pep rally in a sense. Suddenly fear strikes this young man, Zach, and Tyler has a pep rally for him. It's trying to call forth strength and everything else, and that's exactly not what I'm talking about. That is sort of being a good friend, but he was calling him to look to himself. And as we as brothers and sisters encourage one another, it's not to look to yourself. It's to look to Christ. Encourage and edify Another way of saying building other people up. We are building lives on Christ. We lay a foundation. Other people put up walls. Other people paint those walls. Uh, some people put up the roof. Other people deal with the electricity or with the plumbing. And this is a picture that we see in 1 Corinthians 3. 
According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one of you take care how he builds upon it. And so that idea of of the building has the the concept that each of us has a, a, a role to play in this building. It's not done all by one person, but everyone contributes to this building. Think of it in terms of, you know, now we don't really build buildings. We pay people to build buildings for us. And we have contractors and subcontractors and all of that. But think of the Amish as they all join together to raise barns, working together within their community to do that. And discipleship is a community project. Each person contributing what they can to that process of building a life in Christ. This begins, of course, with the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for his people, but it also goes, just like this text does, to the implications of that message and how we're intended to live in the fact, in light of the fact that Jesus has come. And so each of us, brothers and sisters, have something to contribute uh, to this process that's rooted in the word ministry to other people. But in order for that to take place, you need to know the word for your sake, first of all, and secondarily for the sake of others. Statistics indicate that women are far more likely to read their Bibles than men. Brothers, that should not be. As people who are called to lead our families and encourage our children, we, we need to be in God's Word. That doesn't mean you need to spend forty, you know, four hours a day doing it, but be in it. Start small. Start, if you're not already, start with our community Bible reading. One chapter a day. But read it. Think about it. Pray over it. Talk about it. Begin there, my brothers. Just as you're doing. It's interesting, that phrase. This is the last time Paul uses something like this in this letter, but there's been a couple other times, if you followed the community reading, hopefully you noticed that, uh, that Paul uh, you know, lays out these commands, but he says, just as you're doing, do more so. And so there's a number of things where Paul recognizes they're already doing this, and he wants them to recognize that he sees that, but he wants them to do it more. So he's not beating them down as though they're not doing anything. He's recognizing what they're doing, but he says, let's do more together. They're doing it. and should do it even more. And the same is true for us. As I, as I look upon my, this congregation, I don't see people who aren't doing anything. I see people who are. But perhaps they need more direction more um, a better understanding of what the goal is to interact with it. And so discipleship, as we think about this, really is, is 
when we disciple people, we're not just giving them theology, we are giving them theology, but we're also intending to help them to learn how to do this thing, how to encourage, how to edify. And so, for instance, I've got some books from uh, Ed Welch, and uh, the first one is actually side-by-side, the session. Uh, All of the officer trainees are reading that book right now. Some of them have finished it, some of them haven't. Uh, I won't tell you who's who. Uh, But... That's what, this whole, that's what the whole point of that book is, is that one another ministry, and then there's a companion caring for one another that's a, intended to be a small group thing, and uh, it takes the last half of side by side and bakes it into more of a community thing. And one of the things I have in terms of for our future Sundays at nine is going through these books utilizing them to disciple people on how to care for one another. We can't just assume that you know how to do that. We have to help you know how to do that. And so uh, that's a priority for me, to help you know how to do that. And so... I've changed almost all of the uh, the main points of this thing. And so the answer to that question of, so how does this great salvation matter now? People concerned with the prosperity of the church make disciples. If you're not concerned with the prosperity of the church, guess what? You're not going to make disciples. But if you have a desire to study the prosperity of the church, you will inevitably make disciples. So as we think of that every member ministry kind of thing, is the, is the work of elders different? Is the, the work of elders necessary? And if so, a kind of how? And Paul addresses that in verses 12 and 13. Now we're not sure if the, that, that, that same idea of even as you're doing so, do so more applies here. Uh, but Paul wants them to respect and esteem those who are over them, and they should do so even more than they do. He has this interesting phrase when he speaks about the officers of the church, and I believe they're the officers of the church. Those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Paul utilizes three participles to understand this group of people that they are intended to respect and esteem beyond bounds. That's the idea there, to esteem beyond bounds or love beyond bounds. And the first of those parsables is that those who labor or toil, often with the idea of the point of spiritual and emotional exhaustion that takes place. In other words, as I've said before, ministry is not easy, nor is it intended to be easy, and there are times when you will be exhausted by ministry. Don't be surprised by that when it takes place. Otherwise, you're not laboring. You're not toiling. We understand how this happens at work, and especially we understand how this happens in parenting. What parent has not been exhausted spiritually and emotionally by their children. We all have. We've all been there. Last night I had one of those discouraging moments 
where something got undone in mere moments. It's exhausting, it's discouraging, it's disappointing in many ways. That's ministry. They are to seek to encourage and edify formally and informally. That's the labor that they're, they're doing. And this is particularly intended to be seen in the pulpit ministry. So one of the things we talked about in the Vine Project is the centrality of the pulpit ministry in the discipleship of a congregation. That the pulpit ministry is to be seen as the key foundation for a transformative learning community. Helping you to know the Word. Helping you to know what Christ has done. Helping you to know the implications. Tying all those things together so you understand how it works. How to better understand the Scriptures and apply the Scriptures. We see Paul's exhaustion revealed in a number of passages like Colossians 1, but let's think for a second about 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 10. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, referring to the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And so Paul speaks of working very hard as an apostle and yet recognizes it's the grace of God at work in him that enabled him to work so hard. The grace of God at work in him that enables him to work so hard is what happens. The second thing that Paul uses to describe these leaders is that they pay attention to, they watch over, they protect or guard the congregation. Okay, uh, They're paying attention. They're noticing what's going on. They're protecting and guarding them from danger as well. I'll confess to you that this has been very difficult in this time of COVID. I feel like I have done a horrible job in caring for many of you during this time. And yet, as I speak with other pastors, I recognize that they're having the same problem. We're not sure how to do this in light of these circumstances, in light of the fact that the people that you don't see all the time, okay, the people, the people that you, that, you know, aren't here, so to speak. And for a few months, none of you were here except the worship team. Okay? That's difficult. Just as it's difficult for you to keep track of the people you care about that you don't see like you used to see. Okay? You have the same trouble. And so do we. Officers are intended to care for the flock as a whole, as well as caring for the individual sheeps, sheep, there's no S on the end of that one, that make up the flock. Okay? We're, apply, we're intended to apply the word to the, the whole group, as well as helping to apply the word to particular people in that process. 
We can't, unfortunately, as much as I would like to, provide meticulous attention for each and every person. It's one of the great things that I remember from the book, The Imperfect Pastor by Zach Eswine, remembering that I am not infinite, eternal, and unchanging. Only God is. And so that means that I can't pastor for everyone uh, and according to what my ideals might be, what I wish I could do for each and every person, because I don't have the time nor the energy. And that's not an excuse, but that points to the fact that there need to be other elders and deacons, as well as the inclusion of the congregation in that whole process. We're all supposed to be looking out for one another because one person cannot meticulously care for a congregation of 70, 700, 7,000. Also, the third aspect of what they're intended to do is to admonish in order to protect the purity of the church. Because you're admonishing someone who's going the wrong way. You're admonishing someone who's, who's either um, guilty of having unsound doctrine or unsound living, and often both. Because unsound doctrine will communicate or will uh, create unsound living. And if we become committed to unsound living, we tend to want to destroy the doctrine uh, that is sound, that keeps us from it. So it's a, they're interrelated with one another. And so officers need to admonish those who are going astray or have gone astray. Because they threaten the purity of the church. So disciple making cares because disciple makers care about the purity of the church, they're willing to admonish those who go astray. And yet Paul sneaks in here, possibly in light of the fact that some people in the Thessalonican church were were not excited about the leaders of their church, not sure. Some people seem to think this, but be at peace among yourselves. It's important to recognize that impurity breaks the peace. First, in the initial guilt, but often in the reality that guilty people often cause problems. People who have unresolved guilt tend to make everyone else's life miserable, or at least someone else's life miserable. The the power of, of psychological projection is seen in this reality. I have seen it far too many times to realize where someone just gives me the most difficult time in the world and then I find out that actually they're guilty. And instead of dealing with their guilt, they attack someone else. It happens more often than we would like to admit. And so Paul's Encouragement here to be at peace amongst yourselves includes that idea of making sure there's not a log in your own eye. 
to, to not take the back seat and criticize all the time everyone else for what they do, what they choose to do. Pursue peace. Those who make disciples value peace. In part because Jesus is the Prince of Peace who has become our peace. But we also see right here in this passage, jump down to verse 23, the God of Peace. Peace matters because peace is an attribute of God and therefore of Christ. And therefore, as people made in His image, we are to reflect that peace. That peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians chapter 5. Something that the Spirit is intended to produce within us. But again, from Ephesians 2, Christ is the one who is our peace, who has reconciled us to God and reconciles us to one another. And so Paul then was able to say in Romans 12, for instance, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Now, in that statement, Paul recognizes that as that not all of it depends upon you. Some of it depends on the other person. Some people don't want to be at peace. And you can't fix that. But make sure that you're willing to study peace. And so, who makes disciples? Well, people concerned with the purity and peace of the church make disciples. Well, So what? Let's explain what it looks like out of verse 14. What does this disciple-making thing look like? Paul here identifies in verse 14 three groups of people. And these three groups of people are found in the Thessalonican church. Uh, Most likely he has heard about them because, remember, Timothy had gone to Thessalonica and gotten a report and came back to Paul in Athens and told them what's going on in the church in Thessalonica. And so these things are happening within that church. But guess what? These three groups of people are in every church. So, it's applicable to us as well. And the first of these three groups is admonish the idol. In other translations, you might see the word unruly. This is a military term. It's about those who break rank and therefore cause problems. If you've been in the military, you understand this concept. The guy who's not doing what he's supposed to be doing is usually doing something he's not supposed to be doing. Causing problems for everybody. And that's the idea here. It seems to be that there were people who were idle. They weren't working like they were supposed to. Therefore, they're living off of other people, okay, taking advantage of brotherly kindness. And also, uh, in, in the midst of that, additionally, giving the gospel a bad name. Okay? That's important to keep in mind. And so they're threatening the purity of the church 
as well as the prosperity of the church. And whenever you threaten the purity of the church, you, of course, also threaten the peace of the church. And so these people, it's like a triple header of difficulty that is created. They need to be warned. They need to be rebuked. There's an aspect of pleading that comes with that word as well. And so we have this idea of of an appeal, not just to logic, but an appeal to values, an appeal to will. And that's when we get into the idea of the dynamic heart. So one of the books I read recently is the dynamic heart in daily living. It's a book about counseling, but I read it, you know, to think about pastoring and um, preaching and, and the recognition that this is very John Framish, although he's got it. Not the, the triangle doesn't go in the right direction, okay? Uh, but you've got thinking, you've got feeling, or or uh, the affective or values, as well as the will choices. And all these interact with one another. And so when we think about discipleship, we're we're appealing not just to the cognitive, but we're also appealing to the affective as well as the volitional. To make full-rounded disciples, part of what we need to do is address all three aspects of the dynamic heart. We're only going to change choices as we change thoughts. And not just thoughts but also values. What people love and cherish. Sin is not just connected to thoughts, but is also connected to what you cherish and value. So we need to help you understand how the dynamic heart works in you so that when you do ministry to other people, you can address those issues as well. So that you're more effective in how you approach people and their problems. The second group is, he says, to encourage the faint-hearted. This again, as I mentioned earlier, is likely within that context of persecution, but let's recognize that affliction of all sorts tends to discourage people. Think of how many people right now are discouraged in light of a pandemic. There are lots of people who need encouragement. They need to be strengthened by the words that we offer them, as we saw above. We need to show them that there is a ground for hope that takes place. I'm reminded of, from Isaiah 42, that the bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice. In other words, the faint-hearted person does not need to be rebuked. The faint-hearted person does not need to be warned, admonished. And in fact, when you do that, you break the bruised reed. Instead of binding together, the bruised reed. When you do that, you put out that smoldering wick as opposed to helping it to come back to life and to burn brightly. Show them hope because they're discouraged. 
The third group he mentions are the weak. Help the weak, he says. Help people bear the burdens that they cannot bear by themselves. The idea here is to hold them up, to cleave to them, or stick to them. And let's look at this picture of the runner here. We could stand on the sidelines and try to encourage them. Keep going, keep going. That person can't physically continue. You could stand on the sideline and admonish them, challenge them, chastise them. What's wrong with you? Something like that. Call them names. That's not going to get that person across the finish line. What is necessary to get that person across the finish line is for someone to come along and bear them, carry them, because they can't move alone anymore. And that's the idea here. We don't admonish the weak. We don't simply encourage or pep rally the weak. We sometimes we need to physically or you know bear the burdens of the weak. And so all of this requires knowing what you're dealing with. Am I dealing with a unruly person? Am I dealing with a a faint-hearted person? Am I, am I dealing with a weak person? Okay, now that I know who they are, here's what I need to do. Uh, they, they need to be admonished or strengthened or helped. Uh, Richard Pratt talks about this in terms of getting the right medicine from the medicine cabinet. Right? You need antibiotics if someone has a bacterial infection, but antibiotics aren't going to do any good if someone has cancer. The right prescription for the right diagnosis is necessary not just in doctoring, but in discipleship. Then Paul says, be patient with them all. Sin, discouragement, and weakness, none of them are resolved in 15 minutes, 15 days, sometimes even 15 months. We live in, unfortunately, the microwave society that expects everything to take place like that. We want, I mean, just think about how the internet used to be with that dial-up. Hearing the noises. Some of you still have the (laughs) dial-up. Jack's now going, I can't imagine how anyone has the dial-up. We want the instantaneous. We want it up now. We don't want to wait. And that permeates our culture and and permeates our hearts in an unhelpful way. It feeds our impatience oftentimes. And our patient God is calling us to be patient with people. 
Because what sin has twisted cannot be straightened in one counseling session. What affliction has wrought upon a soul cannot be undone in a day. What the fall has created in terms of weakness cannot be repaired in a minute. So Paul says, be patient with them all. Not only that, but there's also the reality of resistance to the processes as well. Most of you have had children. And how many of you had children who didn't want the drugs or the treatment that the doctor prescribed so they get better? How many of you don't want to go to the doctor because you don't want to follow the prescribed actions? And it's just like that when we warn, encourage, or help. There is, because of the flesh or indwelling sin, there is a resistance to be made whole. There is a resistance to the peace, purity, and prosperity In the church. The flesh does not want to admit sin. The flesh does not want to admit weakness. The flesh does not want to admit discouragement. And so we put on a different face and we resist the truth. In light of this, Peter asked the question of Jesus in Matthew 18. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Anybody have a hard time with that? I think we all do. Similarly, we see Paul talking to Timothy and talking about the the first of the trustworthy statements that Christ came into this world to save sinners, but then he continues, but I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost or chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul remembers the incredible patience shown to him by Jesus. And he wants that to mark not only his ministry, but Timothy's ministry. And by extension, our ministry. Patience with people. So having been helped, disciples begin to help other people. It's paying grace forward, so to speak. Hope I didn't cheapen grace in that respect. 
But the grace you've received, you extend to others. Pay it forward. So disciples learn how to properly help people through discipleship or being discipled. So studying the peace, the purity, and the prosperity of the church is not rocket science in one respect. It is the very stuff of which discipleship is made of because disciples are people who value the peace, purity, and prosperity of the church and they intend to make disciples with those same goals in mind. These people do not exist naturally, and being made, they don't continue endlessly. Okay, the, the law of spiritual entropy plays into effect right there, Okay, for those who are scientists and engineers. Um, those who make disciples encourage and edify, admonish and help, in order to build a community that becomes that be that is marked by peace, purity, and prosperity, precisely because these are the very things the kingdom is made of. Why do I say that? For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, aka purity, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, and of course. The kingdom is meant to grow. Prosperity. Let's pray. Father, uh, this sounds daunting in some respect. This sounds above and beyond us in some respect. And help us to remember it's something that we're intended to be discipleship, discipled into learning how to do this, but also learning to draw upon Jesus as we do this. So, Father, as we think of these commitments that um, we've been talking about, help us to keep them within that gospel framework so that we're not overwhelmed, so that we're not feeling condemned by the enemy, Uh, but to remember that Jesus is patient with us as we go through that discipleship process ourselves. Thank you for such a patient Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen.